Hello and welcome to this episode of the History at Kent podcast. I'm Dr Charlie Hall. And I'm Dr Mario Draper and I'm delighted to say that we're joined today by Stephen Taylor who is one of our latest appointments at the School of History the University of Kent um, who works predominantly uh, in the field of medical history. I can't think of a more kind of opportune time to talk to, to Steve about, about his work and uh, his thoughts on, on the current Covid situation. Um, so Steve, uh, welcome to the show. Um, I wonder whether you could just give us a brief overview of, of what you're, you're currently working on. Hi both, uh, thanks for having me on the, the show. I'm very pleased to be here. Uh, at the moment, I am currently working on a project, project that looks at uh, mental, what is called mental deficiency, uh, a phrase that's kind of dropped out of common usage because uh, it's pretty much offensive. Um, but it's looking at the, the beginning of the 20th century and how people with what we would call today learning disabilities uh, pass through the education system. And what I'm really interested in is trying to understand their experiences of special education. And I've got a particular school I'm looking at, which is a residential school. Um, and it's unusual in itself as residential schools are usually associated with more elite uh, sections of society and this is very much one aimed at uh, the lowest levels of society and those who struggle to operate within it. So that's kind of where I am now. I'm trying to uh, plow through it during this busy COVID affected term. What, what kind of time period are we talking about? So the school first opened in 1908 and it has crashed into disrepute by 1921. So it's short-lived, um, so it's a short, sharp focus, but it kind of exemplifies many of the issues that are going on in the country related to ideas of mental health, uh, contagion, and the state of the English working class. Interesting. So, I mean, you mentioned right at the beginning there that, you know, this term mental deficiency is one that obviously we, we, don't, we don't use today for good reason. It's, it's obviously, uh, you know, could be conceived as very offensive and pejorative. Are there challenges you find with studying a potentially sensitive topic like this, something that you find, um, and how do you overcome those, I suppose, um, beyond that as well? Yes, there are challenges there. Many of the phrases that I use in medical history are now insults to our modern day sensibilities. For instance, my first book looked at idiots. And if we refer to somebody as an idiot today, that is a insult. You would be offended if I were to call you an idiot out on the street. So back in the, the mid 19th century, idiots, idiocy is a medical diagnosis. It relates to learning disability. And it's very much, the difficulty comes with encountering the historical context and the modern context and making sure everybody's aware that when we're talking about this in history, it's perfectly acceptable in a historical context. But in the modern day context, we must not let those kind of boundaries blur. And it's been quite an interesting one because I've had a, a, some groups of students who uh, have stumbled over these words and have been a little bit sensitive about them and they've gradually worked into using them appropriately and understanding the importance of applying the, the correct historical terminology because we have to do that to talk about the period in question. So yeah, it, it's interesting and the change of language is always uh, one of those subjects that I like to discuss both with colleagues and students. 
on the subject of, of your students, um, you've obviously mentioned how they're, they're grappling with, with some of the, the difficulties associated with um, studying this subject matter, you know, language being, being one of them. Um, but do, do you feel that the, this kind of history, that medical history in, in general, can offer different and new perspectives to, to students on, on history more, more broadly? Um, you know, you've already mentioned, for example, um, that, that your work Basically, you know, it, it revolves around ideas of class and, 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 and stuff like that, which, you know, you wouldn't automatically say is, is medical history pure and simple. Indeed, I think that medical history offers that lens of everybody gets sick. Everybody experiences illness at some point in their lives. Everybody is affected by infectious or contagious disease. As the, the present day is making us profoundly aware of I think so I think medical history gives us that vehicle to be able to discuss experience and understanding how people in the past negotiate with both medical institutions or, but at the same time the effects and the impact of illness on people and it gives us that kind of a universality even though within that context we often do fall back on looking at certain groups of people for instance the poor feature heavily because they are the most recorded and so our archival approach is kind of skewed by the records that we have available to us but we do have that universality of illness and it does give us a lens if we're willing to look sometimes read against the grain and explore these experiences and that's that's so interesting what you say there about the fact that so many of the records actually you know uh, relate to the poorer parts of society because so often we find that the historical record overwhelmingly favors the wealthy those who kept diaries those who corresponded those who are literate often being the ones who are um you know who are, who are best recorded in history so i suppose in that sense it it opens up a, a part of the society that isn't usually necessarily studied which i think is is really important um and i suppose i was going to sort of ask you to, to speak a little bit more as to how you actually approach teaching the history of medicine um, and how you how you get your students to engage you've said you've had some challenges and they've been grappling with things like language how do you ensure that they they get the best out of, of studying the history of medicine well that's a really interesting question and i'm not sure i have the answer <laughs> it's, it's always a challenge um i find that students enjoy things that are a little bit different or a little bit gruesome or a little bit awkward or a little bit uncomfortable to talk about sometimes and I think this is a really good way to introduce the history of medicine. So, for instance, I teach a, a, a class on smallpox. And I start with a wax sculpture of a girl who's covered in pox. And it is really difficult to look at. It's a really striking image. And it's one that is very difficult to put yourself in that situation it's very difficult to empathize with i think because that girl must have obviously been in a lot of pain very sick at the time and the life was going to be probably very short from that point and these kind of narratives these stories these experiences of people are find of a really interesting way to draw students into the wider themes related to the history of medicine. So that personal experience, the narrative is what I am really interested in. And that's kind of what I like to convey to the students that I'm teaching is that these are real people experiencing real things and how must they feel at these points in time. And then looking outwards from that to understand broader impacts of both disease, but also public health measures, medical development, 
and how they affect different elements of society at different times. You know, I, I find the same in, in my own teaching about uh, the history of, of war, that, that the best class that I teach year in, year out is probably on, on atrocities and war crimes in the First World War, um, because it, it almost forces students to, to kind of take stock and, and, and think that these are ordinary people doing things that, you know, in normal times they wouldn't but it's circumstantial it's all sorts of, of of pressures being being put on them and and how then you know you you can reconcile you know those, those two those two elements and um you know it, it generates really interesting debate because you know kind of put it to, to students can you categorically say that in the same situation you wouldn't do the the same thing but it's it's all about you know the the, the kind of gruesome nature of war you know at a very local level on what individuals can do to each other and then kind of you know taking it into a bigger discussion from there um so i, I quite like the, the parallels in in the, the teaching approach because um, I, I see it in in what i do as well just on on um the subject of of, of teaching still and and uh the, the field of medical history um are there any kind of recent books other than your own of course which you've already <laughs> loved ruthlessly uh, that you'd you'd recommend um to people maybe starting out in in medical history that's a, another good question. There, it depends on, I suppose, where people, people's interests lie within medical history. There's a, there's a lot going on out there at the moment. Uh, one of the books that I found the most interesting uh, is by Jen Wallace. Uh, it was published probably a couple of years ago now, but it's on the skin and the body in the asylum. And what she does is she explores the idea of mental health, mental illness, and insanity through the lens of an asylum, but using the body as the archival source almost. So she starts with the skin, then she goes deeper to bones and she looks at the brain and she takes this kind of holistic bodily approach to understanding how these institutions for mental health functioned. And it's a really innovative, innovative way uh, of approaching the topic, I think, because there's so much work done on mental health that it's a really new way to kind of explore it. It's also really interesting. And another book that's not quite out yet, but I've had the pleasure of reading, reading in advance, I think it's been published in January, is Rob Ellis's work on the lunatic asylums in London. And what he does is look at how the London County Council operates its uh, asylum system. So it's looking at how lay authorities operating a medical institution and one of the key things he draws out and I found really interesting is that they restrict access to beer for patients and when they restrict access to beer the patients all refuse to work so it's a really interesting stu study but at the same time it's got these kind of quirky little kind of anecdotes in there that, that really bring it to life to people so they're two books that I, I would definitely recommend people engage with. Great. I mean, they, they, they sound fascinating. Um, and I think we can all relate to, to not working if no beer is provided. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's yeah, that certainly sounds something familiar. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm no historian of medicine, although it's sort of been on the periphery of, of some of the stuff I've looked at in the past. And I've always been struck by the, the kind of innovative work being done uh, in that field. And the, the Wallace book that you described sounds like, like a really fresh approach to a topic that is obviously very alive and very vibrant at the moment. And that's that's great to hear. Um, but speaking about things that are alive and vibrant at the moment, um, I suppose we perhaps ought to uh, segue smoothly into <laughs> talking about uh, the dreaded COVID. Um, 
I wonder if perhaps the, the best thing we, we have a historian of medicine with us, um, maybe the best thing to do is to see if you can perhaps contextualize COVID a little bit in, in terms of historic pandemics and in terms of historic uh, medical emergencies, more broadly kind of uh, societal emergencies around medicine and health um, and how maybe COVID relates and how it's part of a, a longer term trend perhaps. Yes, I think COVID is particularly interesting because we've always experienced epidemics of disease. Um, it has been a fact, our, fact of human society that if you go back into looking to ancient Greece, you, you see them cataloging instances of plague. Um, right through the Middle Ages, we get the Black Death in England in the 14th century, then plagues that strike through to the 17th century. Um, the last kind of, well, the last significant pandemic was the, the Spanish flu outbreak at the beginning of the 20th century. And then we've had quite a lull for a century. It's, it's been a hundred years since we've experienced uh, this kind of disruption to our everyday life caused by disease. And I think this pandemic is particularly interesting because we have a modern healthcare system in place to support and help people. So this is kind of, I would class as perhaps the, the first modern uh, pandemic where we have a national health service, where we have big hospitals that are capable of taking on, taking in large numbers of people. We also have the capacity, which we have done through Nightingale hospitals, or despite the debates and discussions of whether they are functioning or not. But we have that capacity to create excess beds, excess ventilators. And the study of the vaccine and, and the production of the vaccine that we've learned about this week has begun to kind of, well, it has been the most rapid production of something that can help to halt a pandemic that we, we've experienced. So I think it sits within a pattern of disease that is familiar to us as historians, but our responses to it are very different that have been very different compared to those that have been available in the past. Yeah, really fascinating that, that you kind of turn this first modern um, you know, pandemic, and like I say, the number of, of responses to that um, certainly, you know, are, are very different to you know 100 years ago and, and before. And, and, the, and the biggest one there, I think, is is this, you know, uh, production of a vaccine within you know 12 months, effectively. Um, you know, since it really um, you know took off on on a global scale, and that's that's being rolled out you know very shortly indeed. And I wonder whether you know you could talk a little bit more about vaccination in its historical context and, and the success of, of vaccinations, um, you know, since, since they, they came about. So vaccination is really interesting to me, actually. It's one of those topics that I find a little bit fascinating. I think it's primarily because I'm terrified of needles. <laughs> so I'm one of those people who will probably reluctantly have to have the vaccine, even though I'll probably pass out within about 20 seconds of it entering the room. But vaccination has been perhaps the most successful public health measure that we've seen when it comes to saving lives. Um, it really occurs at the beginning of the 20th, at uh, the beginning of the 19th century, Edward Jenner, um, everybody knows the story of cowpox and smallpox, I think that he notes that those working with cattle don't tend to contract smallpox and he wonders why. And he finds that cowpox is a good way to immunize people against the much more deadly disease of smallpox. And prior to that, 
inoculation has also been inoculation was in existence pre-vaccine and inoculation is the idea of taking a milder strain of the disease and infecting somebody with it and hoping to provide immunity the danger there with inoculation is that you risk spreading infectious disease further it's still potent disease it's still live disease vaccination on the other hand provides an immunization and preventability from passing on the disease and it really does eradicate smallpox within the space of 70 or 80 years so it's effective it's massively effective and people on the whole tend to see the value in it but at the same time as long as uh, there has been vaccination there has been people who have been opposed to vaccination it, they're two going hand in hand and I think with COVID as well at the moment we're seeing that tradition continuing and perhaps with more ferocity than in the past. Yeah I was I mean I was going to I was going to bring that question in I mean we're talking about sometimes uh, you know quite shocking figures of people in Britain who would who would potentially refuse a vaccine and I do wonder how much of that is tied up in our modern kind of uh, internet era, social media era, the, the spread of, of conspiracy theory, the spread of um, complicated uh, versions of, of events uh, has become um, all too widespread. Um, and I think that, yeah, we, we may be seeing, as, you, as you've already said, a kind of modern vaccine now coming up against a modern anti-vaccination movement as well that's been fueled, whether it's, you know, anti-MMR and stuff from the, from the um, 80s and 90s coming through as well. Um, and I suppose I'm going to ask you a very tough question here as well to, to take a hist you know, turn you from a historian to a, uh, someone who can predict the future and, and think perhaps a little bit about how historians in, in the future, 50, 100 years from now, will look back and, and, and analyse our response to COVID and our handling of COVID, not necessarily from a, from a political point of view, but maybe from how society has responded to this. What do you think might be the key aspects of, of a historian's reflection on COVID um, in the years to come? That's an interesting question, and I think the way I've looked at this so far is that often you, you teach things, and students sometimes say to you, why didn't somebody do something at the time? Why didn't they act? Why didn't they change things? And I think COVID has kind of given us real life, that real-time experience of that, of why don't people act when they should act? and the multiple factors that I suppose play on decisions. And I think the big one that might come out of this is the economy versus public health and the value of saving lives or saving the economy. And I think that's a discussion that's been ongoing since lockdown began in March. And it's going to, going to continue to roll on, I think, up until probably the middle of next year at the earliest, because we're still going to have to socially distance. We're still going to have to be wearing masks. There's still going to be impositions on people's lives. And that idea of disease affecting people's livelihoods, affecting the way people live their everyday life, I think will be the thing that we look back on, mainly because it's been such an obstacle to the everyday, if that makes sense. So people have been so used to living their lives in a certain way, jumping onto tubes, jumping onto buses, jumping onto trains, standing in sports grounds. And then all of a sudden this virus comes along, which halts all of that. And people are all of a sudden isolated and distanced. And I think isolation might be another thing that comes out, that the psychological 
effects of infectious disease, how they have impacted people in the long run, and particularly those people who are isolated from loved ones, perhaps, and then experience loss. So I think there are going to be numerous medical, economic, political discussions uh, about this virus when we look back on it. And I am sure as well, the future historians will find things as well that I've, I've not even thought about. So the lived experience as well will also be something because it's been so well catalogued through social media. We have this social media source now that is ubiquitous that we, didn't, we don't have when we look back on the flu pandemic in 1919, 1920 or the Black Death in the 14th century. We have those access to everyday voices, which I think could be really interesting. I'm sure it will uh, will stimulate a lot of uh, a lot of new work um, in the years to come. Um, you know, maybe even give you uh, another idea for a, for a project <laughs> on 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 sort of mental health and, and mental um, yeah illnesses. That's, uh, that's definitely something that that you could tackle. I'm, I'm sure. Well, that's that's pretty much us then, um, Stephen. Thanks very much. I know you're you're a cricketing fan, so I'll put this in in cricketing terms for for seeing off not just the opening bowlers, but for then taking the attack to the spinners um, as well. Uh, you've been fantastic guest um thanks very much for for your insights brilliant thank you for having me see you soon bye thanks bye. steve bye for now